This week we are privileged to have Mrs. Jill Briscoe in our pulpit as our Summer Light speaker. Jill Briscoe was born in England and found Christ when she was 18 years old. Upon graduating from Cambridge University, she began working as a teacher by day and had a vigorous street ministry to the youths of Liverpool by night. She met Stuart at a youth conference and they married in 1958. In the years since, Jill has become a highly sought-after Bible teacher and author who travels around the world ministering to under-resourced churches and speaking at international conferences and seminars. Since 2000, she and Stuart, who was formerly senior pastor of Elmbrook Church for 30 years, have had the joy of equipping and encouraging believers across the globe in their roles as ministers at large for Elmbrook. Jill has authored more than 40 books, including devotionals, study guides, poetry, and children's books. And if we don't have a copy of her book in the bookstore, Henry can get it for you. She serves as executive editor of Just Between Us, a magazine of encouragement for ministry wives and women in leadership, and served on the board of World Relief and Christianity Today for over 20 years. Jill and Stuart call suburban Milwaukee, Wisconsin their home. When they are not traveling, they spend time with their three children, David, Judy, and Peter, and 13 grandchildren. When you hear Jill this morning, you will sense her passion, her authenticity, and you will feel you know her well. Join me in welcoming Jill to our pulpit. Well, thank you so much, Pastor, and what a privilege it is to give me this privilege of your pulpit and just to come and share my heart. And I was so delighted to uh, be here as you presented your babies. Um, I'm a child of the Second World War, in case any of you are wondering which one, second. (laughs) And... um, When I was converted and met my husband, married him, he used to say to me, somebody in your family prayed for you. And I would argue with him, not my family. There is nothing I can find in my, anywhere in my family of anybody that was a believer, etc., etc. You know, somebody will have prayed for you. There will be someone. One day we'll find out. Well, um... I grew up through the war, somehow survived it, even though we lived in Liverpool and bombed every night. I never slept in a bed, just in an air raid shelter in those years, etc., etc. And uh, grew up through my teenage years asking all the questions that uh, every student in the world was asking Cambridge, Oxford, Harvard, Yale, etc. Um, what was that? What was that world war about? I remember asking my mother, who were the Jews? Well, she said, they say they're God's people. God's people? Well, I thought, I'm glad I'm not one of them, if that's how he looks after his own. So very confused, I came out of that Holocaust. Many, many questions, but never could find anyone to answer them. And when I got up to the university, 
the whole campus seemed to be doing nothing else but ask these God questions. Well, is there a God? And if so, what's he like? I came to really want to know there wasn't. It would be easier to believe there wasn't a God than there was because then I had the bigger question. What was he doing? Why didn't he intervene? What was it all about? However, God in his grace answered my questions and somebody put a book in my hand, first Christian book I'd ever read, by C.S. Lewis, who happened to be a professor there when I was there. I never met him. He'd written four books or five. This was in the 50s. And it was called Weight of Glory. It was about heaven and hell. And in his incredible way of coming down to the little minds he was addressing, he used uh, the picture of a door in the pitiless walls of the world. I just love this quote. There is a door opened in the pitiless walls of the world, and one day we shall get in. And as I read Weight of Glory, this little book about heaven and hell, I was alone in my little Cambridge room, and I was walking back and forth. I couldn't sit still and read this book. I remember getting up and reading a little bit and stopping and thinking and then reading. And I came to this quote, there is a door opened in the pitiless walls of the world and one day we shall get in. And a great cry came up from this student, lost student's heart. Oh, if only someone would tell me. So-called England, so-called Christian England, Oh, if only someone would tell me. And God read that as my prayer. I didn't address it as a prayer, but he read me. And within a month, I got sick, rushed into hospital in the middle of the night. They didn't know what was wrong, thought it was appendix. They took that out, but it wasn't. (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) What were they going to try next, right? And so here I am, very frightened, very scared, very sick, And God in his grace put next to me in a ward of 30 women, the first believer I think I ever met in so-called Christian England. She was a nurse, but she was sick herself. Just recently converted at John Stott's church, Anglican church. And uh, she took me on. (laughs) And she began to answer my questions about the door in heaven and what it was and who would get in and Uh, As soon as I heard the gospel, the God walked down the stairway of heaven with a baby in his arms, put him in a bale of hay and set the world on fire. As soon as I heard it, I grabbed it. And she led me in that very simple prayer about being a sinner. I had no idea really what I was saying, but I repeated it after her. Understanding enough. You just need enough, that grain of mustard seed, that grasping, that wanting. And I remember after that prayer, looking at the girl in the next bed to me and saying, does anybody else know about this? (laughs) And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, I mean in England. Do do, do they know about the door and about how, how you just led me through it and how, did they know? And she said, well, of course, Jill. I said, who? Who knows? And then I looked at her and I said, you don't mean all those people in church? No. Yes, Jill. 
then how come I'm 18 years of age and I've looked for 18 years for someone to answer my questions and I've never heard? What are they doing? And I decided the day I was converted to Christ that it would never happen with me and that everybody that came into the orbit of my life would at least hear and have the chance to reject him. So many people say to me, what do you do with all these pagan heathen people and all the things that you find? And I say, well, I just find that nobody's rejected Jesus. What do you mean? Well, they haven't had a chance to hear. That's all. They're like me. And God knows if they only had a chance, they'd do what I did, grab it, and spend their life making sure everybody heard. And so at that point, I became a believer. But I've always wondered, how? How could somebody as unchurched, totally unreached as me, and my husband kept saying, somebody prayed for you, somebody prayed for you, somebody prayed for you. No, 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 I've, I've looked, I've thought, I've gone back in our family tree, nobody. And then I remembered something. When I came home from Cambridge to try and explain to my bewildered parents what had happened to me, and made a very bad job of trying to explain it, I remember my mother's worried little face looking at me, and she said, are you a religious fanatic now? I said, I've no idea, what's that? And she said, but Jill, I, 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 and then she was quiet and she said, well, we are Presbyterians. <laughs> I was so excited. I said, we are? <laughs> Mother, you never told me. You mean, I'm a Presbyterian? I had no idea what that meant. <laughs> yes, dear. And are you going to go to church now? I said, yeah, I think so. She said, well, I hope you go to ours. I said, I'd love to. Where is it? <laughs> she got the yellow pages out. Sad. Let's find it, she said. So we did. I turn up at this man's house knocked on the door, and in his robe he opened, very Presbyterian, very solemn. Yes? Oh, I'm a Presbyterian, I said. Really? <laughs> Who are you? Well, I'm Jill, Jill Ryder, and, and I've, I'm at Cambridge, and, and I just found the Lord. And, and I came home, my mother told me that this is my church, and, and, and you're my minister. So he was backing away from me down the hall at this point. <laughs> and that was my introduction. But why I tell you that story is I suddenly realized who prayed for me. Somebody, apparently my mother, brought me in her arms into a little Presbyterian church in England, probably the only time anybody had ever prayed for me. Don't underestimate what happened this morning. And what a privilege 
And that little group, and it was a little group, I'm afraid the Presbyterian Church in the 50s and 60s were in very bad shape in the UK. But there were enough godly believers there to take me on, apparently. Thank you, whoever you were in my life. And so it's not surprising, I suppose, as a young student lying in bed, I heard my name. He called my name. He called me to himself. Jill, Jill. I heard it lying in a hospital bed. And I want to just turn your attention to the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. Let me tell you why. As I started working in the back end of Liverpool with gang kids in my classroom with whom I could do absolutely nothing with, in desperation as a young teacher with all these ideals I'd learned at Cambridge, I realized they didn't like me. You know something? If they didn't like me, they weren't going to listen to me. That's a life lesson, incidentally. If people don't like you, they're not going to listen to you. Do you listen to people you don't like? Think about the teachers in your life. Did you ever listen to somebody you didn't like? I never did. And I realized if they didn't like me, they weren't going to listen to me about math or English or Jesus. So one day in my beautiful home, Manor House, in the suburbs, I didn't tell my parents where I was going, got on a bus, went down to Lime Street, Liverpool, back to my school area, and I started looking for them. And then I started hanging out in the most unbelievable places where I found them. Just hanging, they say here. What are you here for, miss? I just want to know what you do after school. First, they were suspicious. After about two months, they began to look for me. Coming tomorrow night, miss. Will you be here? I'll be here. I don't know how long it took. And then I was able to speak into their hearts because God enabled them to like me. They began to listen to me. They began to come to Christ. And one of them, who was pretty well illiterate, said to me, Trevor, his name was, leader of a gang, come to Jesus in my classroom. Miss, would you teach me to read? He said it in front of his gang. I said, that's very brave. Ask me that. I would be delighted. Bring your buddies. They could actually almost read. They just didn't know it. And so I began a class with them. Uh, I was a very young believer. I had no idea whether an apostle was the wife of an epistle at this point. I had absolutely no idea. <laughs> and I didn't know where to start. And I said to them, where do you want me to start? Because I want to use the Bible to teach you to read. And this boy said, start in the Old Testament, miss. I said, why, Trevor? And he said, it's like a big dark house and I'm afraid to go inside. And then this street kid said to me, take me inside the big dark house, miss. Switch the light on. Introduce me to the people that live there. Street kid. And it was my delight to do that. And I, along with my kids, learned to meet the people in the big dark house. And perhaps that's why most of my books and ministry come out of the Old Testament. And I soon met with Trevor and his kids, uh, the person of Moses, and you find his story in chapter three and four, as you know. And here is Moses, charmed life, protected floating down the aisle from the crocodiles, miraculously saved, at the right time, in the right place, for God is a God of understanding, and the word means a God of timing, perfect timing. 
because the princess just came down at the right time, do you remember? And Miriam, Moses' sister, was just waiting at the right place at the right time. And she was 13 years of age, 13 or 14. And she was brave enough to step out and say, do you want to know what to do with the baby? I've got somebody that could nurse the baby. And you know the wonderful story, God of timing. And how Moses had four or five years with his mother, but it was enough. And his mother breathed into that child everything she knew about God, Jehovah, everything. And then gave him into the arms of the princess in the palace. And God used his palace training, and he began to train him in government and language and philosophy and dreams and everything he was going to need to lead a million and a quarter people through a desert for 40 years. And God painted him with the colors of his culture, and he put him in the right place, and he invested in Moses, leadership. And he decided, somewhere along the line, Hebrews tells us, to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And he chose to side with the Israelites. And that took about 40 years And somewhere along the line, there came a day. And he decided to go and deliver the Israelites. So he went out and he went down where the Israelites were in slavery and he went to see what he could do. But there was something that had not happened in his training and it happened inside him. There was one Achilles heel this man had and it was his temper. All his life. Never got hold of it caused him problems, caused the children of Israel problems, certainly caused Moses problems, couldn't control his anger. And when he got down there where his people were, and he saw an Egyptian mistreating one of the people, remember the story? He killed him, hid his body in the sand, nobody knows, he said. Ah, somebody had seen. And it was known, the Bible says, and so Moses has to flee to Midian, the desert where he takes up residence for 40 years. He's failed. All all that God put into him, readying him to lead the people, here he is. It's the rest of my life, he said. Married, had children, lived with the head of the tribal chief in that area. Day by day by day, led the flock to the backside of the desert. What do you think he thought about? What about the shame and the guilt and the regrets? Do you think there was any hope there was anything left for him and God? No. And then one day, a little burning bush. Strange. It's not being consumed. And the Bible says he turned aside to see. Oh, we have to turn aside and see. There is no failure. There is no desert. There is nothing we can do as Jesus lovers and glory givers that is final. There is no failure that is final. And he turned aside to see and found himself on holy ground. And the angel of the Lord, a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus pre-Bethlehem, spoke to him, Moses, Moses, 
Yes, Lord, take off your shoes. You and I are standing on the same piece of real estate. Holy ground, Moses. If you've forgotten what that's like, apparently he must have done. So we don't know what went on in his heart except despair and acceptance that it was all over. And here he is at 80 years of age. This is the part I love because I'm very old too. <laughs> Miriam was 94 or 5. Aaron was in his 90s. <laughs> and God takes three old people. And it's just the beginning. It's not the end. 40 years ahead of them. And he calls Moses. I'm going to send you, he says, in this chapter. <laughs> and then he names all the people that are going to be there when he gets there, the Perizzites and the Hivites and all the ites, you can imagine. And Moses is absolutely overwhelmed. And he says, who am I? Who am I that's going to do this? That's all over. That's 40 years gone. I blew it. God totally ignores our time clock, doesn't he? Perfect timing. Perfect age. Don't worry about it. I am sending you. And he begins a series of excuses which bear us hanging our heart over them. Yes, they do. Who am I? Well, the answer to that was, who am I, right? Who are you? The answer to, who am I? I'm too small, I'm too much of a failure, I've blown it, and I'm a murderer, God, have you forgotten? No, God hadn't forgotten. There is no sin too big for God to forgive. I do a lot of prison ministry when I am back in the States and other places, and I remember a friend of mine who also is a chaplain, uh, quoting Anne Graham Lotz, Billy Graham's daughter, who went to visit a murderer who was going to be executed in one of our prisons. And Anne said to her, remember what happened on death row, how you came to Christ. Now it's time to go to heaven. Are you sure you believe that you're forgiven? And this lady said, I'm beginning to doubt. I don't know. And Anne told her about walking along South Carolina Beach, finding a little hole, a little tiny shrimp coming out of it, and then going a little longer, and there was a little boy digging a hole, and that was a bigger hole, and then she gets down the beach, and there's this great big earth-moving equipment, and they're digging a hole for a pipe, huge hole. And it was a long walk, and by the time she came back, the tide was coming in, and guess what? It covered them all. No sin. Big sins, little sins, all sin. It's all the same size. Moses? Yes. Who am I? Who am I, says God? I'm the one who forgives. I'm a God of the second chance. Who am I? The answer is, I am Moses. You want to know who I am? I am. Sounds bad English. 
Doesn't say I was or I would be, I will be, he could have. Just I am. Let me define that in the word, in the Hebrew. I will be all that you need me to be, when you need me to be, all that you need. That's literally what the Hebrew means. Moses, I will be all that you need me to be, when you need me to be, all that you need. Enough, in other words. The word is a lot stronger than enough. Who needs a God who's more than enough? I'm enough. I'm sufficient. Sufficient for all that you need. And then he begins his arguments with God. Here am I, but who am I? Here am I, but who are you? Well, you're supposed to going to give me the power to do it, the words to do it, the ability to do it, etc., etc. And then he uses the excuse, here am I, but who are they? And they begin to talk about the enemy. Make no mistake about it, we have a formidable enemy, especially in our generation in this day and age. Ask me about it. Ten men have just been murdered in Afghanistan. Dr. Paul Little, Tom Little, many of you know about this, been world news. 40 years serving the people in Afghanistan. 40 years! He served under the king. He served under Hussein. He served under the Russians. He served in that country, the people of Afghanistan. Humanitarian, Christian aid for 40 years. And last week, the Taliban caught that little band of medics and slaughtered them, Dr. Little included. It's a dangerous world. More martyrs in our generation than the entire era of the Christian church up to now. And Moses was looking at a scene like that. The Perizzites, the Hivites, all these ites. Do a little bit of research and find out about which of those groups was anything like civilized. Formidable enemy. Who is bigger, says God? Satan and his angels or me? He's a cornered animal. I have hold of the lead. When I want, he comes and Answers to me. He's a created being. I'm the only uncreated one. I have a handle on him. Yes, he's bigger than you, Moses. I'm bigger than him. I'm bigger than him. So, who are you? Nobody without me. Who are you with me? Enough? Sufficient? My power will be yours. My life will be in you. I will help you. And Moses goes on and he says, but I can't speak. And the word he uses is, I have an impediment. Moses had an impediment. <laughs> so you can understand why he says to God, you're sending me to Pharaoh to say to him, you know. And God says, of course I know. Who made your mouth? I made your mouth. You say you can't speak, I'll put my words in your mouth. He said the same thing to Jeremiah, do you remember in chapter one? Jeremiah was 18, God said, I'm gonna send you 
and the Josiah, godly young king, two teenagers, turned this thing around. Lowest part of Israel's history. And Jeremiah said, I can't speak, I'm only a child. And God said, don't say you're only a child. I'll put my words in your mouth. My words in your mouth. I could, tell, I could stay here all day and tell you stories where that is happening today. Two girls in front of an Islamic court. This is world news, so I can share it. Last March, arrested for their faith, for their conversion. Now in front of the court to try them for apostasy. 25, 27. And they answered and would not deny their faith. And one of them said, I hear that you believe that God speaks to men. <laughs> God doesn't speak to men, and certainly not to women. And she said, who are you to say who God speaks to or not? God has spoken to us by his Holy Spirit. And God gave those girls three trials, sent back to prison for mistreatment in between. Three trials, they brought them out again. Have you rethought it? Have you rethought it? Yes, we have done our thinking, says the eldest girl. We're done. We've done our thinking. We will not deny our faith. God gave them credible, sufficient courage. Do you think that they didn't have any fear? Do you think they just did it scared? They did it frightened. And that's what God said to Moses. Enough. You'll find me enough. Yes, you'll be frightened out of your mind. Yes, you've got an impediment in your speech. All these things, but... Do it with an impediment in your speech. Do it old. Do it sick. Do it because I'm telling you to do it. Moses isn't through. And he says, here am I. Send Aaron. <laughs> I wrote a whole book on here am I, send somebody else. Here am I, send my brother. We do it all the time. Here am I, send the pastor. We have a professional staff. So there's a very difficult situation over here. That's what we pay him for. Send the counselor. Instead of putting ourselves in people's pain, instead of saying to God, you can use me. I stutter, I stammer, I don't know enough. I'm too old, I'm too young, I'm too uneducated. Away with all of this, says God. I am sending you, every single one of us. How could it be that he puts his work in our grubby little hands? I never got over that. What a privilege. What a privilege. And it says in chapter 4, God got mad. He got angry with Moses. I remember when I was writing the book, coming to that part, saying, I don't like this verse, Lord. Do you get mad with me? And God said, yes, often. Because I won't do what you tell me? Because I'm scared? No. Then why'd you get mad with me? Why'd you get mad with Moses? And it dawned on me why. 
wasn't because God got mad with him because he wouldn't do what God was telling him to do and he got miffed. He got mad with Moses for his sake. God gets mad with me for my sake. Think about it. What would he have missed? Do you get it? He would have missed the Red Sea, right? He would have missed the manna in the morning. He would have missed the tent of meeting with the Shekinah glory and walking into it and seeing God face to face, face to face, face to face. Can you imagine missing that? God didn't want him to miss it. Stay in the desert till he died. Presumably another 40 years. That's why God gets mad. That's why he wants to say to us scared, inadequate, shame, guilt-ridden people, come on, for your sake. And Moses would never have known the power of God and the presence of God in the way that he did if he hadn't gone, scared, frightened out of his mind, feeling as he did. Once God said, okay, Aaron will speak for you. Just get yourself out there and go. And he went. He went. Huge challenge to me, this whole story. Never more than in the last 10 years of our ministry. Totally over my head. Totally scared out of my mind. Totally old, often totally cold. Totally, totally, totally. God says, away with it all. If I am sending you, I will equip the called. He doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. And you say, well, I'm not called. I'm just little Miss Joe. I'm just little Miss Suburban person. <laughs> Every one of us is called to discipleship. Every one of us is called to take up our cross, not our crown, incidentally, which American Christians seems to think. We're not called to receive thanks. We're not called to be encouraged. We're not called to anything but the cross, right? It hasn't changed the message. Come after me. And if you don't hate in comparison to the love you have for me, your family, and everything else, then you can't be my disciple. Hard. Hasn't changed. But oh, and if we can just submit to it, we can just say, okay, do it. What we, we would have missed. One story. Quite a few years ago when the FARC gorillas were busy with mayhem in Colombia, Whitliffe invited my husband and I to go and minister to all the Whitliffe missionaries who'd been withdrawn onto the base. They were surrounded in the jungle by FARC guerrillas. In that jungle, there were three men, captives. One of them was ours from Elmbrook, 23-year-old Mark Rich, three New Tribes missionaries who had been taken by Colombia guerrillas from their mission station. Nobody knew where they were, but we knew they were in the jungle surrounding the Wycliffe base. 
in Loma Linda in Colombia. And the head of Whitcliffe and his wife invited Stuart and I to go, and there was a school on the base, 800 missionary kids from everywhere in Colombia were on that base. All the Whitcliffe missionaries were doing their work on that base because it was too dangerous to live outside. But it was in FARC country. There was no one protecting an open campus with 2,000 people on it, just jungle. And somewhere in that jungle was Mark Rich. I remember standing up at Elmbrook, sending them off with love and prayers. We'll pray for you. We'll support you. Bye. Two babies in her arms. And when the invitation came, I freaked out. I said to Stuart, I don't know if I can do this. And then came a warning from somebody or other on security, don't let the head of Whitcliffe and don't let the Briscoes come because we think they're targeted for kidnapping. And I, I've known that other times, but I've never seen my name on a bit of paper before. <laughs> and it just, I couldn't, I just, I, I said to Stuart, I don't know. Well, I knew he would go, say gorilla, and okay, you know. <laughs> it's an ex-Marine, my husband. And he said, well, I'm going to go, Jill, but I'm not going to tell you what to do. You ask the Lord, and you do what he tells you to do. And I wrestled with this thing. Now, this, is, this isn't so long ago here. Missionary for 13 years with street kids, 40 years, pastor's wife, traveling the world, and now 10 years and doing what we've done. And I freak out. Yes. And so I began to wrestle, and I could not. I said, Lord, I want to be as honest as I can. If you tell me to go, I dare not stay. But you need to tell me, and I don't know if I'm willing to hear the answer. And I began to wrestle with this thing. And we were actually editing a book on family, family book of Christian values. And there was one whole chapter on courage. My husband was collecting all this material. And the Sunday before we'd gone, I still couldn't say yes. And he said, stay home from church, Jill. We've got to tell Whitcliffe if we're going today. And you figure out. And he went off to church. It was Christmas. Actually, Christmas fell on a Sunday that year. And so I went up to the study, and I was looking through this pile of stuff, and I found a pile on courage. I thought, this will do it. I will read through everything that he's collected on courage. Well, I began, and it was the most depressing thing. <laughs> it was Elizabeth Elliot, and it was all sorts of martyrs, and all of that. I thought, this isn't going to help me. And right at the bottom of the pile was a little poem. I have no idea who wrote it, but two of the verses were, two of the lines, courage is fear that has said its prayers. Just the strangest thing. But it caught me, caught my ear. Courage is fear that said its prayers. How could I have missed that? And so I got down my knees and I said, you want me to go frightened, don't you? You just want me to go. And I've been waiting for you to take the fear away. I've been waiting for courage, whatever that feels like. And the courage hasn't come. Lesson that I've had to learn over and over again in my life. Isn't it funny the way you have to learn the same lessons? And so I said, okay, I'll go scared. I'll be obedient. I know you want me to go, which you did. And so I went. I went scared. I stayed scared. <laughs> but I had sufficient. I had sufficient. My husband and I have just 
come back from China, Myanmar, actually. And while we were out there with the Chin tribes people, a young missionary man came up to me. And he said, do you remember me? I said, no. He said, I was one of your detail. I was a senior in the school when you came to Loma Linda. And he said, they gave me and three buddies the job of picking you up at your little house and walking you to the meeting thing and, and keeping you safe along the jungle path every day. I said, oh, yes, I remember you. Thank you, thank you. That was such fun. They gave us code names, Abraham and Sarah. <laughs> Great missionary kids, fabulous kids. I said, oh, my word. And, and I said, you have to just... Sit down, tell me, you know, what's happened from then, 10 years or whatever it was, till now. How'd you get out here to Myanmar? And he just told me his story. It was nothing to do with us going to the thing. But then he said, thank you for coming. You didn't send us your books. You didn't send us your tapes. You didn't tell us you were praying for us. You came. And he said, that was a ministry of presence, Jill. A ministry of presence, and that's why I'm here. I knew that I had to go. I have a ministry of presence among these people. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I will be with you. What about the parasites and the Hivites? What about the gorillas? What about the path I have to walk to the meeting place every day? Unprotected. I am. Oh, I will be all that you need me to be when you need me to be. All that you need. Yes, Lord. I would have missed it. His presence. His power. His kiss on my cheek. His thank you in my heart. I want to miss that for the world. And he's glad I went, because he knows what I would have missed of all that he had in mind for you. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for this man one day I will meet in heaven and thank this Moses, this failure, this man who couldn't, this man who at first wouldn't, Thank you that you didn't give up on him. Thank you that you've never given up on me. Because you know what we'd miss if we weren't obedient, if we weren't disciples, if we didn't take up our cross. We'd miss you in all your power and all your glory and all your present presentness. We would miss living beneath the praise of angels. And knowing that in our hearts, thank you. I pray for my brothers and sisters in this beautiful church, where each of them are, and especially for those in a desert of dryness, despair, defeat, whatever. They know who they are, Lord. Touch them, even now, as we sit here together. Yes, Lord. 
May you hear those words. Yes, Lord. Whatever, Lord. Now, Lord. Yours, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.